You are listening to the audio preaching podcast from Heritage Baptist Church in Corpus Christi, Texas, led by Pastor Johnny Chen. Our church is dedicated to serving Jesus Christ and reaching the world by going forward with the gospel. We pray that you will be helped and blessed by this message from God's Word. The book of 1st and 2nd Kings. A lot to go over, uh, but it's not going to take as long as you think. Books of 1st and 2nd Kings, so let's go ahead and turn there. I want to read a portion of scripture from Deuteronomy before we go into this. I just want you to listen to it. I'm going to read it and then we're going to pray and we're going to continue with the message here. Deuteronomy 29 verse 25. Listen to what the Bible says. Then men shall say, because they have forsaken the covenant of the Lord God of their fathers, which he made with them when he brought them forth out of the land of Egypt. For they went and served other gods and worshipped them, gods whom they knew not and whom he had not given unto them. This is God speaking to Moses prophetically, okay, of what would happen if Israel would not pay attention and if they would not listen. This is what's going to happen. Verse 27. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against the land to bring upon it all the curses that are written in this book. And the Lord rooted them out of their land in anger and in wrath and in great indignation, and cast them into another land as it is this day. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, help us as we look through this, these books. And Lord, help us to understand more of what is going on. Uh, help us to know not only what is written, but why. We need your Holy Spirit's power. Watch over those who could not be here today. Please bless them and comfort them. We look forward to the day when all of this can be over, and we can be back together again. Thank you for your people. Thank you for this church. Thank you for your son. We pray all this in your name. Amen. Written 550 B.C. Written in 550 B.C. So you can see there's a big gap between when 1 and 2 Samuel is written and when 1 and 2 Kings is written. The time period is a big time period that it covers. From 975 B.C. to 575 B.C. 400 years it covers. We don't know who the author is. Some people say it's possibly Jeremiah. But we have no way of knowing, honestly. It's, it's completely unknown. And the audience is the nation of Israel. And just like First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings are two different books in our Bible, but they're the same story. And it picks up where First and Second Samuel leaves off with an elderly King David on his deathbed, uh, about to pass away. He's coming to the end of his 40-year reign. And as the name suggests... This book contains the record and a lot of incredible stories, but the record of the line of kings that came after David over Israel all the way until, spoiler alert, Israel gets taken into exile at the end of 2 Kings. And with both books containing a total of 47 chapters, over 1,500 verses, um, we cannot go into detail in both of these. However, because it's really one story, we're going to look at both today as deeply as we can and then uh, see, of course, what is written and more importantly, why is written. I've divided it into five parts. It's hard to divide this, but I've divided it into this five parts. So part one is 1 Kings 1 through 11. Part two is 1 Kings 12 through 16. Part 3 is 1 Kings 17 through 2 Kings 8. Part 4 is 2 Kings 9 through 17. 
And the last part, 5, is 2 Kings 18 through 25. We'll go over those again. Part 1, 1 Kings 1 through 11, is Solomon's dominion. 1 Kings 12 through 16 is Israel's division. And if you don't get all these, I'll, I'll give them to you after if you would like. 12 through 16 is Israel's division. 1 Kings 17 through 2 Kings 8 is God's intervention. 2 Kings 9 through 17 is Israel's degeneration. And 2 Kings 18 through 25 is Israel's deportation. So let's recap recent events. God has transferred or he has extended his covenant promise to Abraham and then it went to the entire nation of Israel and then it went to David and specifically his line. And God said, I am going to raise up the promised seed of the woman. The messianic king is going to come from your royal line of sons. And that's a promise to you and that's never going to be taken away. And this Messiah is going to reign over all of Israel forever. And through his reign, through his kingdom, uh, all of the nations of the earth are going to be blessed. What was originally talked to, in, uh, to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, right? But who? Which one of David's sons is going to be this messianic king? Now, it doesn't take long into kings. We're already running into trouble. So let's talk about Solomon's dominion in chapter 1. David's old, he's dying, his body can't retain any heat. Uh, they hire a servant girl named Abishag, and Abishag's only job is to keep the king, keep the king warm. Uh, and she comes into the story a little bit later, so that's why I'm bringing it up. While David is dying, trouble arises because David has sons that are still alive, Solomon being one of them, but his oldest living son is Adonijah. So technically, according to the usual tradition, Adonijah is next in line to the throne. But who did David promise that the throne was going to pass to? Solomon. Adonijah doesn't like that. So Adonijah, while David is on his deathbed, comes up with this coup, and he gets Joab. Do you remember Joab? He's kind of like the commander-in-chief, the one that you don't mess with. He gets Joab, and he gets one of the priests, Abiathar, to follow after him and set him up as king behind David's back. Now, he doesn't tell the people that he knows are behind David. He doesn't tell Zadok the priest, because he knows he's loyal. He doesn't tell Nathan the prophet, and he definitely doesn't tell any of David's mighty men. That's a smart idea. Now, Nathan and Bathsheba find out what Adonijah did, so they tell David, and David passes the throne to Solomon in this big ceremony. And when Adonijah and his followers find out, what do you think they do? Well, they run. They're scared. Adonijah runs into the tabernacle and grabs onto the altar and basically pleads sanctuary. Nobody can get me in here. It's like I'm, I'm on home base type thing. Uh, and then everybody else runs. But Solomon tells Adonijah in verse 52 of chapter 1, he says, If he will show himself a worthy man, there shall not an hair of him fall to the earth. So he's very merciful. He's a very merciful man. So with Solomon given the throne, obviously... David gives his final instructions to Solomon before he dies in chapter 2. And he begins by reminding Solomon, you need to stay faithful to God's covenant. God blesses obedience to his covenant. 
and to his law. But then he shifts and he starts telling Solomon, there's some men in the kingdom that you're going to need to deal with. So first of all, he brings up Joab. You're going to have to deal with Joab. Joab murdered Abner. He went behind David's back and killed Absalom. He murdered Amasa. Remember Amasa? He was the commander-in-chief that Absalom actually put in, and then politically David said, we'll keep Amasa, and he'll replace Joab, and so Joab kills him. And David basically tells him, look, do whatever you think is best with Joab, but don't do nothing. And then he talks about Abiathar the priest. You're going to need to deal with him. He talks about Barzillai. Barzillai is one of the men in Gilead that took care of David when he was running from Absalom. He says you need to take care of him. And then you remember Shimei, the dust kicker, stone thrower, cursor guy when David was fleeing from Absalom. Uh, and he was saying, you deserve this. You're a bloody man. And he's one of Saul's family. David told him when he came back to the throne, because Shimei came back and said, I'm sorry for what I did. And David looked at him and said, I promise you, you're not going to die for what you did. Right before David dies, this is what he tells Solomon about Shimei. He basically says, I told Shimei that I forgave him, but therefore hold him not guiltless. In chapter 2, verse 9, thou art a wise man and knowest what thou oughtest to do unto him, but his hoar head or his gray head Bring thou down to the grave with blood. Don't let him die a natural death. Bitterness in David. And David dies. Right after David dies, Adonijah tries to weasel his way into the kingdom again. He basically asks for, he asks for Abishag's hand in marriage, the, the one that was used to, for David. When you look at the culture and everything, that was an obvious move by Adonijah to try to get in line for the throne again. So Solomon puts him to death. He puts Joab to death. Uh, he removes Abiathar the priest from his office. He doesn't kill him, but he removes him from office. And then he tells Shimei, basically, you're under house arrest in Jerusalem. You are not allowed to pass the brook Kidron, ever. And as long as you don't pass that, you'll be fine. Three years later, Shimei breaks his house arrest and his ankle bracelet goes off. And Solomon finds out about it and kills him. All you had, you had one job, stay in Jerusalem. And he disobeyed that, and Solomon kills him because of that. And these are the words that chapter 2 ends with. The kingdom was established in the hand of Solomon. And what the Bible is saying is that physically there was nobody left in the kingdom that had shown disloyalty or displeasure with Solomon being the king. And in these next chapters, we're going to see how Solomon's kingdom is established more and more. So in chapter 2, you could say it was established physically. Well, in chapter 3, it was established divinely, and it was established nationally. Now, before we talk about that, look in verse 1 of chapter 3. We see something that's a little troubling. Solomon makes an affinity or makes an allegiance with who? Pharaoh. Whoa, that doesn't sound right. And he actually takes Pharaoh's daughter for his wife. Put that in your pocket. It's going to come back a little bit later. But this is the chapter where God appears to Solomon and he says, what would you ask of me? And Solomon doesn't ask for riches. He doesn't ask for honor. He doesn't ask for the hand of his enemies in battle. He asks for not wisdom, but an understanding heart. That's important. David was a man after God's own heart. Heart. And when you read First and Second Kings, 
I want you to circle all the times or highlight all the times you see the word heart. David asked for an understanding heart. Now, to say that he had wisdom is not wrong. In fact, God comes back and he says, because you asked for this, I have given you wisdom. But he also says, I've given you that heart that you have asked for. And because you didn't ask for all those other things, I'll give those to you as well. I'll give you the riches. I'll give you the honor. And I'll give you peace throughout your time. An incredible, an incredible chapter. Um, let's see here. Now, all of that was based off of, um, so the riches, the honor, the long life. God says, if you obey and follow me, that is what will happen. If you obey and follow me and do like David, your father, did. And immediately after this, Saul's wis uh, Solomon's wisdom is put to the test. So you remember the story of the two ladies who had the babies and one of them dies because one of them sleeps on it at night. And then the lady switches it. And then she tries to trick the other lady. No, this is my baby and that's your baby. And then Solomon, what does Solomon do? He says, take a sword and divide it in half, knowing that the real mother would rather have her baby alive with the other lady than dead. For neither of them, Solomon was a very wise person. And the Lord is bringing out this one story, I'm sure out of many, to show us that God's word came true in his life. Okay, uh, Let's look in chapter 3, verse 28. After the kingdom hears what Solomon did with these ladies, all Israel heard of the judgment which the king had judged, and they feared the king, for they saw that the wisdom of God was in him to do judgment. In chapter 4, it gives us a little insight into what it was like to be in Solomon's kingdom during these early days. It tells us about his cabinet. It tells us about his delegation to get things done. It tells us about his food and his provisions. It tells us more about his wisdom. In uh, verse 32, it tells us about the Proverbs and the songs that he wrote, many of them which are preserved for us today in our Bible. It tells us about his knowledge of plants and animals. He was just a very knowledgeable man. Uh, and he was getting international attention at this time. Everybody nearby is hearing about Solomon. Key verses, though, are in chapter 4, verse 20 and 25, where it's talking about how Israel is seeing great blessings. They're, they're growing to the size of the sands of the sea. They're living in peace. God is bringing his covenant promise to pass under Solomon and right after David. And chapters 5 through 8 are all about one of Solomon's crowning achievements, building the temple. Now, he also built his house during this time, but he builds the temple. And in chapter 5 through 8, it tells us all about that. And it's 480 years after Israel was delivered from Egypt, 480 years later, Solomon begins the construction on the temple. And when you read it, I'm, it's, it's huge. You, you can read about its great size. It's twice as big as the tabernacle. You can read about its great cost. Everything is gold and brass uh, and just incredible jewels everywhere. You can read about its great planning. There was not one axe or hammer used in Jerusalem. It was all outside the city. They cut it down to size outside the city. Each stone was fitted to size out there and brought in and fit perfectly so that there was no sound of tools while it was being made out of respect for God. Uh, you could talk about its great symbolism. If you read through all of it, there's all these angels and trees and flowers and plants and animals 
What does that sound like? Maybe a garden, calling back to the Garden of Eden. You talk about its great work. Solomon hired, well, let's say Solomon brought in 180,000 laborers to put together the temple. Not counting 3,300 overseers. Now, remember this as well. Put this in your other pocket. Under Solomon's rule, there was a lot of labor. There was a lot of work. A lot of hard labor going on to keep up with everything. Okay? Um, after seven years, the temple's complete. Meanwhile, Solomon's building his house. Uh, seven years for the, te the temple. Thirteen years to build his own house. In chapter 8... The temple's dedicated. There's sacrifices without number. There's singers. They place the ark in the Holy of Holies. And uh, God's glory fills the temple. Solomon addresses the people and he says, you need to stay faithful to God. That's why his presence is here, because we're staying faithful to God and to his law. And then he prays to God and he says, please be merciful to us when we're not faithful to you. And then the dedication continues for 14 days. In chapter 9, God appears to Solomon for the second time. This is very important. God appears to Solomon for the second time and tells Solomon, I've heard your prayer, but then God reminds him, Israel must do their part to obey the law. I've heard your prayer. My presence is here, but you must do your part. And God tells him, listen to this. God tells him, failure to obey will bring punishment and exile from the land. If you do not obey, you will not live here anymore. And the great temple that you've built for me is going to mean nothing. It's all going to be nothing. Solomon's kingdom continues to grow. He's giving away cities as gifts. That's how wealthy he is. When he wants, he gives away six cities at a time to somebody. And the spoiled guy on the other side doesn't even like him. Uh, and then he uh, starts the remaining Canaanites in the land. He makes them bond servants. He establishes a navy on the Red Sea. So now he has two ports. He's got the Mediterranean Sea bringing in goods, and he's got the Red Sea bringing in goods. Okay? Chapter 10 is designed for two reasons. You know it for the visit of the Queen of Sheba. right? And it's designed for two reasons. Reason number one is to show just how magnificent Solomon's kingdom is. Because the Queen of Sheba was a skeptic. She didn't believe what she was hearing about Solomon. And she comes in, sees everything, and she says, the half was not told to me. A skeptic becomes a full-on understander of Solomon and his greatness. That's like if you were to go home and turn on CNN, and they were saying, we were wrong. The president is incredible. <laughs> That's seriously what's happening. She came in thinking, no. Nope, there's absolutely no way what I'm hearing is true. And she leaves thinking the half wasn't told to me. So if a skeptic is saying how incredible Solomon's kingdom was, that should tell us something. But it also shows us how Solomon's heart begins to turn. Because the rest of the chapter is telling us all about Solomon's income. His income was massive. The amounts of gold that he was bringing in, his throne that he built... Uh, it's got like golden lions on either side. His silverware wasn't silverware. It was goldware. The Bible says that silver in the time of Solomon was like rocks. Nobody cared. Nobody cared about silverware. In verse 24, it talks about it's, it's not international attention anymore. It's global attention. 
everybody knows about Solomon. Everyone came to seek his wisdom, and when they came, guess what they brought? Gifts and more riches. He had 1,400 chariots. He had 12,000 horsemen. Again, silver was considered worthless, and all these horses he's getting are from Egypt. Now, this sounds great, right? But when you read Deuteronomy chapter 17, which is when God says, when you as Israel choose a king from among your brethren, here's all the things that he's not going to do. And if you read Deuteronomy 17 and compare it to 1 Kings chapter 10, Solomon is disobeying all of them. Now, didn't God tell him, I'm going to give you riches and I'm going to give you wealth? Yes, but up till this point, what has Solomon been using it for? He's been using it for the temple. Now he's just amassing it. You remember that parable where Jesus talks about there's a man who has all these riches coming in. And what does he say? I'm going to build bigger barns. No, that is not why God blesses us. God blesses us so that we can empty the barns and he'll fill them again. But he says, no, I'm going to build bigger barns. I'm going to amass it all to myself and take it where? There's no U-Hauls behind hearses. You can't take it with you to heaven. You can't take it with you wherever you go. We give it away. Solomon is coming, becoming an amassing type of king. The only thing that he is not doing that Deuteronomy 17 tells him not to do is amassing wives to himself. Chapter 11, but what does Solomon do? Solomon loved many strange women together with the daughter of Pharaoh, women of the Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Zidonians, and Hittites of the nations concerning which the Lord said unto the children of Israel, you shall not go into them, neither shall they come in unto you, for surely they will turn away your heart after their gods. Solomon clave unto these in love. And he had 700 wives, princesses, and 300 concubines, and his wives turned away his heart. Read between the lines here, gentlemen. That's at least 700 mother-in-laws. <laughs> For it came to pass when Solomon was old that his wives turned away his heart after other gods. And his heart was not perfect with the Lord his God, as was the heart of David his father. God tells Solomon, because you've done this, the kingdom's going to split. Now let me ask you this. If the kingdom is going to split right now, where would it split? Probably where it's splintered in 2 Samuel with the 10 tribes and the 2 tribes. There's already some drama here. There's already been a rift, and you'd be absolutely right. The kingdom is going to split, and God starts raising up these adversaries against Solomon. Edom has an adversary, his name is Hadad, and here's why I told you about chapter 3, verse 1, where he marries Pharaoh's daughter. Why? Because he wants an allegiance. I want Egypt on my side. Well, guess who Hadad grows up with and actually gets permission from him to come to Israel and give Solomon trouble, Pharaoh? Hadad's good buddy is Solomon's good buddy, Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Let that be a lesson to us. We may think every now and then that the world is our friend. The world is not our friend. The world doesn't care about us. 
There's a man in Syria named Rezin. He's another adversary. Even in Israel, God raises up an adversary. He sends a prophet to talk to him and say, you are actually going to be king over 10 tribes. Now you're the northern tribe. You are not a son of David, so your kingdom is not going to be forever. However, if you obey, I will bless you. That man's name is Jeroboam. You know him as Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. You'll hear that a lot throughout 1 and 2 Kings. After 40 years as king, Solomon dies. Chapter 12, Solomon's son Rehoboam is now king. And Jeroboam approaches Rehoboam. And Jeroboam says, Rehoboam, Solomon has put us under a lot of work. He's made us labor a lot. We're tired if you ease up our workload just a little bit, we'll follow you. Rehoboam seeks counsel. He goes to the older men, smart decision, and the older men tell him he's right. You need to lax up just a little bit. Then he goes to his peers. He goes to his friends. I appreciate a youth group that isn't all clicky. Thank you. I appreciate a youth group that talks to the older people, and thank you older people for giving teenagers the time of day. I appreciate that. He goes to his peers, and you know what his peers tell him? Turn up the heat, man. Your dad whipped them with whips. You whipped them with scorpions, which was basically whips with knots in them. And guess who he listens to? The kids. And that's typical peer counsel. If it goes wrong, it's no harm to the counselor. It's every harm to the person that they tell. And Rehoboam says, Jeroboam! It's going to be a lot worse under me. And the kingdom splits. Jeroboam takes ten tribes to the north. And uh, Rehoboam stays in the south with Judah and Benjamin. I mean, the, Israel is officially divided. Or are they? Because if you think about it, what is still in Jerusalem? The temple. And every year, at least, people are needing to go there for feasts and, and different things. So if you're Jeroboam, you're thinking, wait a second, so my kingdom, my followers need to go into Rehoboam's kingdom. That could be trouble. So what does Jeroboam do? He builds two new temples, one in Bethel and one in Dan, and he puts a golden calf in each of them. He makes his own religious calendar. The Bible says he devised it after his own heart so that they're not even worshiping on the same days. They want nothing to do with the southern kingdom. So you have the southern kingdom of Judah, northern kingdom of Israel. Okay, Ten tribes of God's chosen people have split off from the, rest of the, from the other two. And they are currently obeying the Mosaic law, sacrificing... Offering offerings to cows instead of Jehovah. God's people are doing this. Chapter 13, an unnamed prophet. An incredible story. An unnamed prophet comes up to Jeroboam in Bethel. Right in front of the altar that Jeroboam built. And he said, because you did this, one day a man is going to come up and his name is going to be Josiah. Remember that. What's his name? Josiah, and he is going to burn the bones of the priests that you have set up on this altar. Yikes. And the, and I mean, Jeroboam tries to reach out to him and his hand withers up. I mean, God brings signs to show that the prophet is true. 
But then you read the rest of the chapter, and the prophet that was sent from God is deceived by a false prophet to disobey God, and because the true prophet listened to the false prophet, the true prophet disobeys God and gets eaten by lions. And then when Jeroboam hears, the very prophet that told me to obey God has now disobeyed God. So Jeroboam says, if he's not going to obey, what's the point in me obeying? And Jeroboam keeps doing what he's doing. And it gets worse and worse. They're sacrificing to these, uh, to these gods. Okay, uh, Let's read here in chapter 13, verse 33. He offered upon the altar which he... Oh, I'm sorry, I'm in verse uh, chapter 12. 13, 34. 13, 33 and 34. 13, 33 and 34. After this thing, Jeroboam returned not from his evil way, but made again of the lowest of the people priests of the high places. Whosoever would, he consecrated him, and he became one of the priests of the high places. Jeroboam, I want to be a priest. Okay, sure, great. 34, and this thing became sin unto the house of Jeroboam, even to cut it off and to destroy it from the face of the earth. Now for the rest of First and Second Kings, and here's where we're going to go real quick through a lot of things. The book is going to record the line of kings, and it's going to bounce back and forth between the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. And it's a time of con constant civil war between Israel and Judah. Every now and then they'll come together, and they'll fight against a common enemy, but there's constant civil war. There's consistent digression. Even when they take one step forward, they'll take two steps back. There's battles against foreign nations. A lot of them they lose. There's assassinations going on all the time because people don't like the king that's there. There's allegiances with all these heathen nations that only bring trouble. They even buy the allegiance of some heathen nations by taking treasures out of God's temple. Some of the kings the Bible spends a lot of time on. All, all of them have something in common, though. The Bible always tells us whether they were good or bad in the north and the south. And the judgment of whether they were good or bad is based off of this criteria. Did they follow God completely, or did they engage in some type of idolatry? Were they faithful to the covenant? Basically, were they obedient or disobedient? is what God is bringing out. With this criteria in mind, of the 20 kings of the northern kingdom, give me a guess of how many were good. Of the 20 kings in the northern kingdom. Zero. Zip. Donut. Goose egg. None. Not one. Of the 19 kings in the southern kingdom of Judah, eight. And they can range anywhere from like an A- minus to a C-. minus. I mean, they got a passing grade, but... Uh, now, now, there's some great people in there like Hezekiah uh, and um, Asa and Joash and Josiah. Name sound familiar? Uh-huh. Okay. We'll get to that in a little bit. Uh, but then the northern kings, I mean, they're all bad, but some of them are horrible. Like Amri, like Ahab, just horribly wicked people. Now, the thing to remember is that the northern king, it was like any family who could take over the throne took over the throne. I mean, at one point, at one point between, in a 200-year period, there were nine different families that took the throne. Talk about instability. A lot of different kings in the southern kingdom, but all of them were from the line of David, all the same family. And while the book of Samuel ends with the promise of a messianic king that's going to come and, and deliver people, 
the book of Kings ends with every single one of the kings in the line failing to fulfill that promise. Every single one fails. And in 2 Kings chapter 17, God has had enough with the northern kingdom. And Shalmaneser, the king of Assyria, takes over the land. He leads the Jews into exile. He repopulates the northern kingdom with Assyrians. And there's a people that comes out of this. The Assyrians come. There's some Jews left over. The Jews and the Assyrians that Shalmaneser brings in start intermarrying. They become the Samaritans. Remember that. Now, you would think that the Assyrian captivity in the northern kingdom would wake up the southern kingdom. And it does, especially when Assyria comes knocking on Jerusalem's door and says, we're coming for you next. Hezekiah is king at this time. And because he turns to the Lord, he actually sees deliverance from Assyria because God intervenes and, and basically wipes out a huge portion of Assyria's army. And Judah lives to fight another day. Now, Hezekiah becomes sick, and he's about to die, but God tells him, no, I'm going to give you 15 more years. And then during those 15 more years, there's two major powers right now. There's Assyria to the north, and there's Babylon to the south. Hezekiah just saw victory over Assyria, and when Babylon hears about that, they send basically this ambassador, embassage with these gifts, and Hezekiah shows his entire kingdom to Babylon. And there's another prophet at this time, maybe you've heard of him, Isaiah. And Isaiah says, Hezekiah, what did you do? I've showed my entire kingdom. There's not one part of it that I didn't show to him. And he says, because you've done this, your sons, when your sons take over as king, Babylon is going to come and wipe everything out. Hezekiah's son is named Manasseh. Now, if you think that there were bad kings up to this point, Manasseh was in every way the worst. He sacrifices his own son to Molech. He not only rebuilds all of the idols that Hezekiah tore down, he builds more and puts them in the temple. And when God sees us, he says, Judah's done. Judah is done. Look in ver, uh, chapter 22, verse 2. Manasseh's grandson is named Josiah. He becomes king at eight years old. Do we have any eight-year-olds in here? Anybody? Chloe, eight years old. Okay, stand up, Chloe. Josiah is eight years old when he becomes king. Okay? Look at chapter 22, verse 2. And he did that which was right in the sight of the Lord, walked in all the way of David his father, turned not aside to the right hand or to the left. After 18 years, the temple was in disrepair. He says, I want you to repair the temple. And while the temple is being repaired, something incredible happens. And in fact, it is, it is key to the main fabric of the entire book of Kings. Look in chapter 22, verse 8. And Hilkiah the high priest said unto Shaphan the scribe, I have found the book. I found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. They take the book to Josiah, and they read it to him. And when Josiah hears about it, he can't believe what he's hearing. 
Look at all this wickedness around us. What are we doing? He immediately leads Judah to this massive reform. He breaks down all of the idols, the groves. He removes the false priests, the homosexuals. He destroys the monuments that Solomon has built. Think of this. All the monuments that Solomon built to false gods have remained this entire time. Not one king has taken them down. Josiah takes him down. He goes to Bethel tears down the altar and burns the bones of the false priests on the altar. And he gets up to one of the graves and he doesn't recognize it. And he says, who's in this grave? And one of his historians tells him, oh, this is a guy over 200 years ago who prophesied that there was a man who was going to be raised up named Josiah who is going to do exactly what you're doing right now. And Josiah said, leave his bones alone. And they keep on moving. <laughs> he then holds, holds a Passover feast. But look at this. Look at this. Look at this in chapter 23, verse 25. Talking about Josiah. And like unto him, there's, uh, and like unto him was there no king before him that turned to the Lord with all his heart and with all his soul and with all his might according to all the law of Moses neither after him arose there any like him notwithstanding the Lord turned not from the fierceness of his great wrath wherewith his anger was kindled against Judah because of all the provocations that Manasseh had provoked him withal in the next two chapters a king of Babylon a young man named Nebuchadnezzar invades Judah eventually takes everything, tears down the temple, all of the gold, all of the brass, burns it down to the ground, only leaves a few poor people behind in the ashes to tend to the fields. And we're left wondering, why wouldn't God bless Josiah's obedience? He's always blessed jo obedience before. Why didn't he do it this time? One reason why. The prophets now let me explain. Scattered throughout this time of the kings, God had sent prophet after prophet after prophet to tell his people that they were doing wrong, but they would not listen. One of the messages that the prophets came out and said is if you keep going down this road, eventually you're going to pass the point of no return. And that point came with Manasseh. And God said that to Manasseh. Because of what you've done, it's over with. Just in the book of Kings alone, we see the prophets Ahijah, Jehu, Micaiah, Jonah, the whale Jonah. And this, this gives a little insight into why he didn't like God sending him to Assyria. Isaiah is one of the prophets during this time. M mentioned in Kings. Just those mentioned in Kings. With the main two being Elijah and Elisha. And in fact, that's why I called it the middle part, I called it God's intervention. Because it's really all about Elijah and Elisha from 1 Kings 18 to 2 Kings 8. And it just basically lists all of the miracles that these men did. Now, why is it important to know the miracles of these men? Well, if they're performing miracles, it's obvious that God sent them. God is showing us they have my stamp of approval. Now, why is that important? Because the entire time Elijah and Elisha are saying, you're doing wrong and you're going down a path that is going to lead you to exile, there's false prophets standing up everywhere saying, everything's good. 
You're fine. What does Jeremiah say the prophets keep saying? Peace, peace. When there's no peace, and Isaiah, what does he say? There is no peace, saith the Lord to the wicked. And Elijah and Elisha are coming up. They have all of these miracles. So if everything that we read in Kings wasn't bad enough, we have to remember the entire time Israel is going their own way and doing their own thing. God had sent prophet after prophet after prophet to tell them that they were doing wrong and they ignored them, would not listen. But wait, there's more. Hosea, Amos, Obadiah, Joel, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Jeremiah, all, prophet, all prophesied during this time. Every single one of their books is written before the exile. During 1 Kings and 2 Kings, all of those prophets fit in. And they warned of what disobedience would bring, but none of them listened. So just like God told his people through Moses, he kept his word. And the Bible says he would root them out of their land in anger and in wrath and in great indignation and cast them into another land. And that's exactly what he did. So what do we learn from the book of 1 Kings and 2 Kings? And I'm done. Well, we learn a lot of lessons that we've seen in a lot of the books coming up to this point. Do we learn that God blesses obedience and punishes disobedience? Yes, we do. Do we learn that God resists the proud and gives grace unto the humble? Yes, we do. In fact, Ahab, the worst, one of the worst kings, humbles himself at one point and God shows him mercy. Do we learn that God can use even the evil of men to bring about something good? Yes, we do. Do we learn that man is in every way incapable of obeying the law? Yes, we do. Man is utterly depraved. Do we learn that when given the choice between right and wrong, man chooses wrong? Yes, we do. Do we learn that the answer to Israel's problems is not going to be found in man? It's going to be found in the Messiah. Do we learn all that? Yes, we do. But the thing that I believe we learn more than any other book so far is just how low God's people can stoop by simply not listening to God's word. The entire time Israel is rebelling against God, God was still speaking to them, working amongst them, and in every way pleading to them to repent. And they heard it, but they didn't listen. Have you ever been talking to your kids or you're a boss and you're talking to your employee? You're not listening to me. That's exactly what's going on. If you go through and you highlight in yellow all the times that the Bible mentions heart in 1 and 2 Kings, highlight in orange all the times that the Bible says, as he spoke to them through the prophets, and he spoke to them through the prophets, and he told them through the prophets, and they kept on... So many times, the prophets in all of their books, they mention this. They say, you hear, but you don't listen. Or your ears are heavy. You draw nigh to God with your hearts, but your, or with your lips, but your heart is far from him. Ezekiel says you enjoy preaching like listening to a concert, but you don't obey. So that tells me two things. Wherever there is sin, you will find two things. You will find a God that is still speaking and a people that isn't listening. Wherever you find sin, God is speaking, but people are not listening. And much of the story of kings could have been avoided. Listening is not a matter of the ear, it's not a matter of the mind, it's a matter of the heart. 
And our heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? There is only one thing that is powerful enough to show us that our heart needs to change. The word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and the uh, joints and the marrow and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. There's no telling how low a Christian can reach when they just simply don't listen to God's word. A prime example of that is in the book of Kings because many Christians get to this book and they just read through it or gloss over it, never thinking, how can I apply this to my life? How can I learn from these people's mistakes so that I do not make the mistakes? Are we upset right now that people don't seem to be learning from history? How much more should we be upset when we don't learn from his story and learn from these people? And I don't think it's because we don't hear it. I think it's because we don't listen and apply it to our lives. Be doers of the word, not hearers only. So now the question becomes, is God done with his people? They're in exile. No. Read the very end of 2 Kings. We don't have time. But read the very end of 2 Kings, and there's a man named Jehoiachin. He should be king at this time in Judah, but he's in exile. And the Babylonian king actually takes him out of prison and lets him sit at his table and feeds him for the rest of his life. There's hope. There's still hope. God is still working. Okay, God's not done with his people, but how is he going to bring the messianic king when the throne doesn't exist anymore? Okay, let me ask you, how has God been speaking this entire time to his people? Through who? Through the prophets. Read the prophets, and you will find exactly how God says, I'm going to bring my messianic. Thank you for listening to our audio preaching podcast. For more information about our ministries, or if you would like to get in contact with us, please visit our website at heritagebaptistcctx.org. May God bless you as you go forward with the gospel this week.